In the 19th century, Karl von Clausewitz wrote that war is the continuation of policy with other means. If true, then Star Wars is, and always has been, at least to some extent, about political ideas. And we're going to talk about some of those ideas with a special guest in this episode of the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host for today, Johnny Maynor, and I'm joined for this special episode by a man who has written about the wars in Star Wars, both for Lucasfilm and otherwise. It's Chris Kempshaw. Hi, Chris. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Chris. Uh, I recently read both of your Star Wars related books, so I'm really excited to be able to chat to you about them today. Um, let's have a look first at your CV. <laughs> oh God, that thing. Give the folks listening some idea uh, of where we're coming from here. You are a historian and author specializing in warfare and, and I guess sort of modern media representations of warfare. Is that sort of a... Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh-huh. So, so thinking about things like stories, but also video games, right? You, you've written quite a bit about video games and... and... Yeah, I've done some stuff on kind of uh, the portrayal of the First World War in computer games and other kind of general ways that history is reproduced or kind of manifests itself in computer games. And that was weirdly like a jumping off point for doing the Star Wars stuff. Fantastic. You got your PhD from University of Sussex uh, examining relations between British and French soldiers during First World War. So First World War is kind of... Yeah, it kind of looms large. It's kind of my my kind of, I don't know, proper, with like heavy inverted commas around uh-huh. it, kind of proper historical background and specialisation. Everything that I've done since has kind of emerged out of my interest in the First World War. And then I've kind of wandered off in other directions to kind of embrace my kind of true geeky self. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you're not trying to convince people to let you write about Star Wars or video games, you've got to talk about the First World War. Yeah, 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 and then basically, you know, spin the wheel and make a choice. You know, which way yeah. do you want this conversation to go? I'm going to make this dinner party incredibly uncomfortable for everybody, but I can, you know, I, I can move between subjects. Yeah, yeah. So, so you you have taught. Uh, you're you're currently a senior research fellow for uh, the Center for Army Leadership at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's a kind of like one of my kind of semi-academic affiliations okay. that I've had for, for a while. Um, but my kind of main, I don't know if we call it like a nine to five, because academia works beyond the hours of nine to five, kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it, um, I'm a research fellow at the University of Exeter um, for until kind of May time next year, uh, working on a project examining um, groups who don't get showcased in kind of big commemorative events regarding kind of British war and British military experience and the like, and what lessons we might be able to take from the First World War centenary and look ahead to the Second World War centenary. Yeah, gotcha. And uh, alongside all that, as, as if that wasn't enough, you are the series editor of uh, an academic book series that talks about yes. video games and the humanities. Yeah, yeah for De Gruyter. Um, because there's a there's like a it's, it's wrong to call it a burgeoning field there is an established field now mm. of kind of historical game studies which is pretty much exactly what i was mentioning earlier you know how is history represented in computer games yeah um and the the book series that i'm a series editor on it's an academic book series so you know the books sadly aren't cheap but you know mm. it's it's 
a good place for people to to go to publish stuff about historical representation in computer games because it's good for them it's good for the publishers but it's good for the for the wider field to solidify us as a as a group yeah yeah and you know the price point in academic books i guess is always an issue for a lot of folk but you know libraries exist yeah 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 absolutely no, thankfully thankfully and we'd like them to continue existing indeed indeed but you know uh, I, and those sorts of books to my mind are, are ripe for folk to get your library to get them in you know yes. um and then other folk can read it too because it'll be in stock yeah um, absolutely and and then of course you you're no stranger to podcast world either so you actually co-present um oh what a lovely podcast yes that's uh that's a, a fun thing with me and a couple of kind of friends and colleagues who look at kind of pop culture in the first world war so you know one week we might be looking at um say the the computer game nine um battlefield one next week we might be looking at the film 1917 um we've got an upcoming recording in the next couple of weeks where we're going to look at like the young indiana jones um tv series because there's a couple of episodes of that set in the first world war there are indeed yeah just some fun kind of we get historians and, and other academics on to come on to kind of talk about their their geeky interests that surround yeah. the first world war culture oh i love it I'm, I'm going to have to subscribe a subscriber um, you're the one <laughs> um so as well as all that you've actually written a couple of star wars books now your your sort of academic work which is the history and politics of star wars death stars and democracy published by rootledge uh last year is this 2022 yeah yeah, yeah it must have been last year uh, kind of yeah. august time i think uh and then obviously you were a co-writer as well on a big proper Lucasfilm endorsed <laughs> reference book Battles That Changed the Galaxy so that was co-written with Jason Fry, Cole Horton uh, and Amy Ratcliffe all of whom are much bigger names than I am in um, <laughs> Star Wars book world you know Jason Fry just you know author of the last Jedi novelization etc indeed indeed he, he's written some really good uh, middle grade novels as well it's sort of one yeah. of my great discoveries over the last couple of years trying to I've tried to read all of the new canon, but uh, yeah, no, Jason Fry has written a, lo- a couple of little gems in there in sort of the, in yeah. the middle grade space, um, just really pacey Star Wars yarns, you know, um, that, yeah. you, that you can box off in a couple of hours as opposed to the several days undertaking at least that your average 300 plus page, yeah. you know, adult beast is these days i kind of yeah i read a lot of star wars and i kind of wish secretly not so secretly that they just make some of them a bit smaller you know <laughs> yeah for those who are a bit, you know, busy and have kids and stuff and jobs <laughs> less is more sometimes um so i want to talk to you about both of those books um while while we've got you here but let's start to talk first uh, a bit about the history and politics of star wars um at the top of the episode, uh, I mentioned <laughs> Karl von Clausewitz uh, and this idea that war is somehow a continuation of politics. Um, yeah. Now, for me, that's dredging up some sort of half-remembered undergraduate stuff from my <laughs> from my days studying international relations and politics in Aberdeen in the in the nineteen nineties. Um, so, so I guess does Clausewitz still figure in IR and politics classes these days and and does that aphorism still hold any water or does it hold enough water to kind of work as a as a useful jumping off point for a chat about Star Wars and politics 
so I think I think he does still appear in in those spheres. I mean, he certainly was when I was when I was studying international relations in two thousand and five and two thousand and six. So you know, it, we'll carry that over from your nineteen nineties experience, and it's still it's still going. Um, does still kind of crop up at times in history teaching. I've used Clausewitz uh, briefly at bits and pieces for some kind of teaching on kind of war studies courses and the like. Um, and I mean, there's there's an element of that both you know say take someone like Clausewitz or, or Sun Tzu that they've they've been slightly fortune cookied um in the yeah. sense you know you can you can make the quotes without the context and 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 the like so there's an element where they've been stripped of some of their kind of their their, their weightier insights but I think if you look at kind of I don't know if we call them modern wars say from I don't know the Kosovo intervention or the first Gulf War forwards um to the modern day that actually quote about Clausewitz is incredibly relevant um, because, you know, if we look at military endeavours from just, say, Britain and America over the last 20, 30 years, they're all about politics and policies via other means. Um, you know, there's no grand, all-encompassing Second World War moment going on here. Um, yeah. It's it's all about kind of wars for, for reasons that tie in with foreign and domestic policy. So I definitely think that there's still a relevance in understanding and utilising Clausewitz for kind of understanding of modern warfare. Um, and, you know, if you want to understand or you have an understanding of modern warfare and then you watch a Star Wars film, then I reckon you're going to start getting extra stuff out of it. So I think Clausewitz goes reasonably closely in hand with that as well. Yeah. You'll be familiar with the refrain from certain quarters of um, online fandom these days about how somehow politics shouldn't have a place in Star Wars. Yeah, love that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, what what, what do you make of that, given that Wars is in the title? Yeah, like 50% of the title of Star Wars is about wars and, you know, the most apolitical of entities or or situations that you can imagine. Um, What do I make of it? I mean, I I have varying thoughts on it. Some of them, you know, verge towards the flippant of you guys are going to blow your minds when you hear about this George Lucas guy. Um, (laughs) And and I want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, what he he wanted um, Star Wars to be. But I think the underlying aspect of it is uh, I, I think to an extent it's a willful misunderstanding from these these groups that um, that their experience of life they believe to be the default status quo and anything that diverts from that is political um, yes. so watching Star Wars in the 1970s and 1980s it's a universe populated by white people white men effectively you know Princess Leia is and Mon Mothma appear to be the only women who exist Lando Calrissian is the only person of colour um, in the galaxy unbalancing or, or, or changing that dynamic is now adding politics into it because it's not the same because you have deviated from what I accept to be the default normal yeah. version and everything else is politics um, now as I said I think that's a willful misunderstanding of just like accepting on on some weird term that my life is normal everybody else is as abnormal anything that deviates from my life is therefore it's it's diversity forced diversity it's woke it's Mm -hmm. all of these things Mm -hmm. um the other aspect of it is that if you have so fundamentally misunderstood what star wars is about which appears to be a significant part of your personality i'm Mm -hmm. not convinced that we have to listen to you (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, I, I've heard your opinion yeah. repeatedly online and it no longer interests me is yes. kind of where I end up with it. You know, if yeah. you can watch Star Wars and go, the original Star Wars and go, wow, God, what a what a rip-roaring, non-political space pew-pew film that was. <laughs> but then you watch the modern ones and go, hang on a minute, this seems to be ushering up memories or issues of kind of modern politics. And you don't see the the divide between those two. Yeah. Then I, I just don't really understand what it is that we have to talk about with you. Yeah. I sign up to all of the above. Um, yeah, it it it, 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 it genuinely flabbergasts me. Um, to, to your point, uh, it, it just seems there are folk who either have accidentally missed the point or or, yeah. or, or, or willfully so. And to be fair, you know, if I am going to be fair, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about George Lucas shortly. But George Lucas spends a, a fair amount of the time after Star Wars is, is released, slightly annoyed that everybody missed the political undertones yes. of the films. You know, yeah. there is a large collection of people who don't understand what the original Star Wars is about. You know, it's fine. I didn't understand it when I watched it. You know, I didn't watch it as I was a child and then, you know, wander out to the kitchen and go to my mum and go... I think we need to have a very serious conversation about the perils of the Vietnam War because yeah. I was a child and it didn't mean anything to me. But Indeed, that doesn't mean that I'm going to I'm going to bank that that position for the rest of my life. No, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Um. Let, but let, let's think about for a minute. Uh, take a step back. Let's think about you uh, as a child uh, yeah. encountering Star Wars for the first time. Uh, take it right back. So, where I guess what was your earliest encounter with Star Wars? Where did that journey start for you? So, I imagine very probably similar for for you and some of the listeners as well. Uh, particularly for those of us who kind of live either in um, Ireland or or over in Britain, um, is that we recorded Star Wars off the TV. Um, at some oh, point, yes. it was on ITV um, in the nineteen eighties, and we recorded it then. Would this perhaps have been, I mean, certainly for me, it was the UK premiere in 1982. You're a little younger than me, though, aren't you? So... Yeah, I was born in 1983, so okay. Okay. it's possible, but I think it was mid to late 80s, and we got Return yeah. of the Jedi recorded as well. Um, not The Empire Strikes Back, for some reason, that that's, didn't exist in our VHS. It, it was the last one that I saw, yeah. yeah. It, it, it Which took, means... I think it took ages to hit UK TV for some reason. Which probably means similar to 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 me in that I never had my Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father moment. I it's mm, it is something yeah. that I have always known, presumably because of the order in which I watched the films. So I have no yeah. re- realization about the the big twist. Um, what it does mean is now now whenever I watch, if I sit down on Disney Plus or so, and I watch the Star Wars films, I find it really weird that there aren't advert breaks where I expect <laughs> there to be advert breaks. Um, yeah. Because I don't that remember the... some of the ads. Yeah, absolutely. There was an R. White's uh, lemonade advert in the middle of one of mine, and I still remember <laughs> the jingle song. Um, and and cause I'm pretty sure a lot of them were around Christmas time because there's always kind of DFS yeah. Um, yeah. sofa sales and the like. Yeah. Um, so that was probably my earliest kind of interaction with Star Wars. Um, and, you know, enjoyed Star Wars. and like, But then we get, you know, that period in the 1980s, 1990s where... You know, there is not a huge amount of Star Wars material. Um, and then when I was on holiday, probably 1997, something like that in America, mm-hmm. um, I was in uh, Florida and I went to a Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney and saw Star Wars novels. 
mm-hmm. and bought one. It was a uh, Spectre of the Past by uh, Timothy Zahn, mm-hmm. and just ate it up and then just ate to the rest of the expanded universe as well and that was kind of the period in which i fully leaned into yeah. kind of full star wars fans and was kind of buying like the x-wing versus tie fighter game and and various other bits and pieces shadows yeah. of the empire on the n64 and just massively massively yeah. leaned into it yeah i mean th- 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 that was kind of a golden era of the expanded universe wasn't it they, they, yeah, they were, it really was they were being very bold and breaking a lot of new ground and in terms of pushing the sort of the post return of the jedi story forward but also things like shadows of the empire this massive multimedia project yeah. that you know as they said at the time it's a film without a film it, it yeah it had it had the novel it had the graphic novel it had computer game sort of an emotional soundtrack to the novel which i wish they'd do more of that that's a great idea you know i I would I would lap up a sort of a double CD symphony on the High Republic. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know? on Twitter, uh, Tom Darth Internius, um, who works for Lucasfilm Delray Books, sometimes puts out playlists of book uh, of music that he listened to whilst editing new Star Wars novels, um, which is which is pretty fun. But yeah, you know, originally new composed stuff for the High Republic would be great, um, and other bits and pieces. I, yeah, I'd be well up for that. The legacy of something like Shadows of the Empire so it lingers on, I guess, in the sort of yeah. transmedia stuff. You know, so yes. the High Republic does lean that, into that to some degree, at least insofar as it's it's comics and it's YA and it's middle grade and it's adult novels. And at some point, we may get that Eclipse computer game. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, oh, the nineteen nineties really pushed things forward, and I could tell reading your book that you. You pretty much read all of the expanded universe, right? Yes. Yeah, it was the yeah. easiest research when I was writing the book of my life because normally it's like, oh god, I've got to go to the Imperial War Museum, I've got to get the train to the British Library, or I've yeah. got to go to this French archive. But for this, it was as well. I my bookshelf's just right over there, yeah. so um, I'm to get that novel off of it then. Yeah. How do you arrange those shelves? Are you chronological? How do you chronological um, in universe Best chronology? Um, so yeah, you know, in that I can. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Viewers can't see this. I'm just kind of pointing over to like a, a bookshelf that's massively <laughs> out of shot. But yeah, kind of starting with um, what then they brought out with the Old Republic uh, around yeah. the, again, the Old Republic uh, computer games and the like, coming all the way up to kind of a crucible when when the expanded universe yeah. reached, its, reached its conclusion. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, let's go back to, to Mr. Lucas then uh, and think about what he has said about politics and star wars um it's probably it's a useful place to start even yes though it's not the most useful <laughs> way to look at star wars and politics but so, so, so and he was quite vocal i think and sort of certainly yeah. in the early 80s he made no bones about what his reference points were what can what can you tell folks listening about that so i think probably the easiest place to kind of start with george lucas is to say that before george lucas was making star wars he was working on Apocalypse Now um, when it was stuck in kind of pre-development hell and the like, and it never looked like it was actually going to happen. And at some point in that process, he decided that, you know, that this film isn't taking off. I want to go and do my own things and is very, very clear in his own kind of interviews and in his own writings that his decision is to go and make a Vietnam War film in space. Um, and the opening original drafts, which you can see, um, again, they're not they're not super cheap. But if you buy Paul Duncan's archive, Star Wars archives books, they are 
firstly, they are gorgeous objects entirely of themselves, and you can get like the mega one that you could crush a man to death with, or um, the slightly smaller ones that you could, you know, know beat a man to death with. Um, they have in those the earliest drafts of the Star Wars, which mm. reference the Vietnam War in all, any number of ways, you know, making very clear that like, this side of the South Vietnamese and this is America after the fall of uh, democracy and everything woven into it, the very foundation fabric of Star Wars is George Lucas's kind of anti-American Vietnam film. Um, yeah. The rebels of A New Hope are fighting a guerrilla war in the jungle out of temples um, and the um, opposition to them are an enormous empire with the with the power to destroy entire planets. The the, the rebels are the the Vietnamese and the empire is America and George Lucas kind of gets confused when people don't get that. He thought he was like had dispensed with subtext entirely. It was a text. <laughs> <laughs> a big text. Um, and he maintains throughout the original trilogy, you know, the, the critiques of America and Vietnam and um, his kind of fears of America's lapse into fascism. Um, Emperor Palpatine is modelled on Richard Nixon, who to George mm-hmm. Lucas is the most horrible evil man in, in, in the universe. Um, but, in, you know, in and amongst all of this is woven various elements of Nazi imagery and bits of the Soviet Union and yeah. stuff. And that's the stuff that blinds people, I think. I, I think that must be right. I mean, it, so it is this sort of blending of Lucas's subtext and possibly buried too deep subtext. About, <laughs> uh, Which is weird, because of all the things you'd think you'd say about George Lucas, a subtle man might not necessarily not... be one of them. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's why the prequels were so on the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, re- he realized. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're right, so it, it is, it's blending his ideas there, but the trappings, the aesthetic, in terms of the empire, at least, does seem to lean towards things that are a bit more like Nazi Germany. So yeah. we have stormtroopers, which which sort of immediately invokes early 20th century German troops. Yes. You know, the, the officer uniforms do look a little bit Nazi-ish. Yeah. You know, um, and I guess maybe that is why people didn't pick up on it immediately. Maybe they just thought, oh, it's about Nazis. It's about people fighting Nazis. Yeah, and it ties into, you know, an existing cultural understanding of the portrayals of nazis um and 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 the second world war and the actor who ends up playing admiral piet um whose name's completely gone out of my mind for the moment um when he goes to the interview for um the role for in the empire strikes back the the direction that he's given is we're looking for a man who would have scared adolf hitler um and um he kind of goes, oh, you know, I, I looked at the uniforms and I could see a very kind of fascist Gestapo element to this. So I just leaned into that. Um, yeah. So, you know, everybody involved in it recognises the Nazi elements of it. Um, and it, again, it ties into that kind of wider cinematic way that Nazis are portrayed. You know, you put somebody in a certain sort of uniform. You don't necessarily have to say they're a Nazi. You just get it because yeah. we've seen it before. We understand the rules. And that Third Reich aesthetic is so strong, is so yeah. recognisable, and the, the, I guess they've leaned even harder into that, I think, more more, more recently. Yeah, they have. But, but, but before we get to that, um, 
I want to talk to you about the expanded universe, the, the empire in the expanded universe, because obviously yep. so we, we have the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, uh, you know, and, and George is exploring these ideas of American democracy subverted and sort of descending into this sort of tyranny. Um, Although, although muddied slightly with the Nazi with the Nazi trappings, but in the old expanded universe, that sort of the Empire post Endor presents quite differently. Yes, and I mean a lot of this was quite new to me because my my own journey with the expanded universe of novels, I, I, I tapped out quite early in the mid nineties, and then only more lot. recently. I, yeah, so you know, I mean. I got about as far as Jedi Academy and sort of the Rogue Squadron books were just about to kick off. And I'm just like, I don't have the expendable income as a teenager. I don't have the time. I'm about to go off to university. I'm, you know, I'm done for now. Yeah. And I didn't come back to it until, you know, sort of the, the late noughties, really. So I've, I missed a lot of stuff. So actually, I've kind of been spoiled a bit by reading your book. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I think there are a billion and, a billion and one other ways that might have been spoiled for some of it, and I definitely was already spoiled for some of it. But um, uh, it was good. It, it sort of actually operated quite well as a bluffer's guide to um, the EU and, and sort of what happens in the broad strokes of sort of the Empire in particular. Yeah. Um, but what can you tell folks about how the Empire presents then post-Endor in the expanded universe in the 90s and onwards? So, I mean, to an extent, kind of very broadly speaking about the EU, I, I genuinely think this is the most useful slash important part of the book, partly because of, you know, the, the sheer tonnage of material that existed in the EU, but also because, uh, you know, you're saying, you know, it exists as a kind of an introductory bluffer's guide to the EU, which is kind of what I wanted, because I think that the field of Star Wars studies needs to interact more with the old expanded universe. But it's not yeah. reasonable to tell a researcher to go away and read 100 novels. Um, it's much easier to go away and watch nine films. Um, yeah. So I'm hoping that this kind of intro to the EU will be a, will be a thing that's helpful. Um, for the Empire in specific, the, the, the kind of the, the, the creative powers that be behind the expanded universe were slightly hamstrung by George Lucas's own decision-making process in that he banned them from going backwards. So no going beyond A New Hope or before A New Hope, leave the Clone Wars, all of that stuff alone. That's for me. It's not for you. Hands off, go away. Um, so they have to go forwards. And what you get in that kind of period uh, post-Endor is this desire to keep making use of the empire because it's what everybody knows you know imperial star destroyers are cool and all of this this stuff but you also have to reconcile with the fact well the emperor's dead and so is darth vader um so what what type of empire exists when you've stripped away its leadership what what happens to a state in those in those time periods and what they end up utilizing is exactly what's going on at the, at the same time that they're writing the books. They look at the collapse of the Soviet Union of this kind of falling superpower, which, um, you know, leadership passes from, from group to group and it begins to fracture into various kind of semi-states or um, kind of emerging post-Soviet nations and the like and map it onto the empire. Um, but it's also done very much in a in a way that reflects a lot of the the concerns and the tensions within American culture at the time. So the phrase that I use for Star Wars is that it's a cultural weather vane in that it shows you which direction the wind is blowing in kind of American popular culture. Um, and if you think, and you're, you're, the listeners think about, you know, films that exist in the, the 1990s, you've got films like, um, you know, 
Under Siege or um, various Tom Clancy films got made or Air Force One with Harrison Ford or uh, The Crimson Tide. And they're all about, oh, my God, this ex-Soviet faction has these nuclear weapons and they're going to destroy America. And what do we do about it? Oh, God, the, the panic. And then yeah. you go away and you read something like the Jedi Academy trilogy or Dark Saber or some of those mid 1990s novels. And they're about exactly the same thing. They're all about, oh my God, this ex Imperial warlord has a superpower and they're going to destroy the galaxy. What do we do about it? And I find that endlessly fascinating the yeah. way that Star Wars in the 90s is just reacting to the world around it but they're reacting quicker than hollywood can it takes a long time to make a film and a lot of money it takes yeah. a, an awful lot less time to write a novel um and you're getting stuff coming out within months and, and you know a year at tops of events there were there were books that come out in the expanded universe about the rwandan genocide and about this Srebrenica um massacre and genocide within a year of those events taking yeah. place it's impressive how quickly these novelists and how quickly star wars is able to repurpose this stuff absolutely and then i guess there's the, a the point in the early noughties then late 90s early noughties when actually what they were doing in the eu turned out to be sort of eerily prescient yeah and um i mean i don't know if they changed tack in response to what happened but do, do you want to dive into that briefly so i mean obviously you get towards the end of the 1990s this kind of exception kind of accepting within Lucasfilm and within the kind of the novelist thing. You can't just keep fighting the Empire every week. The Empire will then lose and get a little bit smaller, but somehow they're still terrifying enough to be a threat. This is we've run out of narrative potential now. So they, you get a you get a peace treaty with the Empire in the Timothy Zahn book, uh, Vision of the Future. And then um, they create this kind of new era, this new threat. It's called the New Jedi Order book series. And it and it focuses on the Yehuzam Vong, who are a um extra galactic alien race who are kind of invading the Star Wars galaxy from kind of the darkness beyond. Um, they are absolutely kind of fanatical in their religious belief. They worship a variety of gods. They um Kind of, they have huge elements of being a death cult. Um, they, you know, they commit ritual torture and ritual murder. They despise modern technology and a variety of other kind of particular things. And they're supposed to be modelled on the Aztecs and the Incas mm -hmm. and the kind of Central American people before the before the Spanish arrive and ruin everything. Um, and that takes along for a little bit at kind of the end of the 1990s and beginning of the 2000s. Um, but then you get a novel called Star by Star. That comes out, which is it's a big chunky novel, um, mm -hmm. and it's about the Husum von capturing Coruscant, um, and it's basically the the death of the New Republic. You get a new state that emerges afterwards, and the way that they capture Coruscant is that they drive ahead of their own fleet these kind of civilian ships loaded with this kind of ordinary people, and they use them to crash into the shield generator shield generated above Coruscant and bring that down, and then they kind of crash into buildings and like on on Coruscant mm -hmm. itself, and it's this kind of big nightmarish vision of destruction. And what's very, very unfortunate for them is that that book comes out in October 2001 Ooh, and the world has changed around Star Wars. Um, and now, you know, regardless of whether or not they were supposed to be modeled on the Aztecs, the reading of the Yehuzam Vong basically changes overnight or, yeah. to, you know, to be mapped across kind of fundamental Islam, Islamic terrorism um, as yeah. manifested in the 9-11 attacks. Um, and that causes 
quite a few problems, I think, mm. within Lucasfilm. And I think they changed some of the storylines and they have a lot of regret about Star by Star coming out when it did. It's not their yeah. fault. These things happen. Um, you know, it happened to Tom Clancy with one of his novels, but... Yeah, you know, that's, that's... I, I, I remember that. There, there was a strange... There was, a, there was an interesting response um, in some quarters to what happened in 9-11 in, in terms of media. You know, I, there, there was a Spider-Man trailer yes. that had originally featured... The Two Towers and a Web. That was pulled, that disappeared. There was an Arnold Schwarzenegger film called Collateral Damage that was delayed yes. for years because of, it was it focused on a terrorist bomb in New York. Yeah, and I don't know if you ever listened to some of the... what some of the documentaries on... I think it was the first Bourne movie on, on the DVD. Um... I distinctly remember um, the writer and director talking about how they didn't know how to finish this movie because there was sort of a feeling or in the air at the time that maybe no one will ever film an explosion again, you know, <laughs> it, you know which is ludicrous. But, yeah. you know, they, they just, everyone was tiptoeing around political violence, around terrorism, or all of that stuff and how it's depicted on screen. And I, and I guess it, it, it's, it's, I guess it's slightly interesting to me that, Lucasfilm didn't sort of pull up a little bit and think maybe we should hold this back or... Yeah, I mean, the, the, from, again, this is all from the outside looking in. So, you know, yeah. I imagine if you were to talk to people at Lucasfilm, they, they'd produce different answers. But you end up with a very w interesting kind of response across the rest of the New Jedi Order um, in that various plot lines that have been established beforehand. So there's this underlying thing that when the Yuuzhan Vong turn up on a planet, they smash all the droids and kill all the droids because they're, they're an abomination, they're a manifestation of false life. Mm. Um, and there's part of it is this kind of underlying ticking along droids' rights movement, which I think mm. is a super interesting. We see an element of it in Solo. Um, yeah. That whole storyline just goes um, pretty pretty quickly. Um, in regards to, well, you know, it doesn't manifest itself, it doesn't appear particularly that much in any kind of future books. But you also get this really interesting, and again, I don't know how much of it was planned, so it was very hard to tell, but for a while, um, you get the Jedi kind of come to this understanding because they've been very torn in the books beforehand about how best to deal with the who's and Fong. you know is it is it right to to be aggressive in the face of a genocidal species or you know should we be acting in defense should we be kind of proactive and the like and they kind of end up taking this position of doing being aggressive for the right reasons is fine actually mm -hmm. you know we can do this and, and keep our souls and not fall to the dark side which is a real interesting message to have in the early stages of the war on terror um given some of the events that are taking place during the early stages of the war on terror that actually you know being proactively aggressive in defense of what is right is fine and maybe that was what they intended anyway but they didn't they didn't take it out is is the only thing that i can say about yeah. about that but they do yeah. then in future series they massively dial back on it again actually go we were actually turn it turns out doing doing bad things for the good reasons is actually just a bad thing um in in yeah. later in later novels but the the rest of that jedi order series is is notable for the way that it it leans in yeah. or it kind of manifests that, that actually the jedi can fight this war on the front foot and it's fine that series is well loved yeah in, in a lot of quarters and i i, I wonder if that adds if that had that, that had something to do with its popularity it was so in a way of a moment and yes. reflective of a moment and people were on board with that messaging maybe they read it and they saw something that they really built attuned with i would love to have a conversation with someone who read those books now 
who hadn't been exposed to any of them had sat down and read them now and what they got from them because yeah. you can't reproduce that that moment in time that we read those books in yeah, um so yeah. you know what type of what type of message and that do they take out of reading like the new jedi order now or does it just yeah. seem like it's a star wars well come back in a year and i'll tell you because i haven't read them yet <laughs> fantastic yeah <laughs> once you are done i will come back and we'll have a conversation about delayed fantastic. war and terror star wars Excellent. Um, put it in the diary. Um, <laughs> let's let, let's think about the sort of the sequel trilogy era and sort of the Disney canon, and, and I guess getting back to the Empire and then and how the Empire is presented there. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that sort of post all that sort of more in, not more interesting that that different take on sort of post Endor Empire where it's more fragmented and sort of more like a post Soviet Union situation. Yeah. What, what we're getting here um, with sort of the Disney canon is, is sort of a clear redrawing of lines between good and evil. Yes. Uh, the Empire and the First Order are space Nazis. Yep. <laughs> Basically. Um, what elements in, in recent stories are sort of are making that clear, do you think? And um, what do you think has, has driven that sort of reframing of the Empire and its successors away from the slightly more fragmented post-Soviet nebulous thing yeah. that before. I mean, when he's making The Force Awakens and kind of coming up with the, the details, J.J. Abrams has said in various interviews that his starting point for kind of conceiving of the First Order is what happened if the Nazis escaped to Argentina and 30 years later all got back together again and decided to, you know, go and take over the world again. Um, and you see large parts of that within the portrayal of the First Order in uh, The Force Awakens. I mean, the the speech on Starkiller Base, where, you know, General Hux is stood at the front ranting and waving about the Republic as, a, as an abomination and a, the way it lies to the galaxy and the disgustingness of democracy, stood in front of the red and black symbols of, of the regime. And at the end of his speech, all of the stormtroopers make a unified salute mm. where they raise one of their arms. Um, and sometimes you watch something and go, you know, it's possible as I'm reading, I'm reading too much into this. And sometimes you watch something and go, I am reading exactly yes. the right amount yeah. into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so on the nose is it, it's the front cover of my book. Yes. That's um, that, 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 that imagery. Um, but there are, there are interesting kind of, and again, you know, a lot of the the context of Star Wars comes through the books and, 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 and the novels, you know, it was the same with the expanded universe and it's the same now with, um, kind of Disney canon um, in that whereas the, the Empire in the old expanded universe, you know, struggles on in various forms for years and years and years and years and years in new Star Wars canon, you get a year after the Battle of Endor and you get a cataclysmic yeah. battle at Jakku, um, which effectively ends the Empire as a recognisable state, um, you know, general kind of a father Hux senior and his merry men and then yeah. Admiral Ray Sloan all escape off to the unknown regions and nobody realizes it. And what we get now from kind of the Mandalorian is that there are still little yeah. Imperial remnants dotted around the galaxy, but you get like yeah. a cataclysmic end rather than a continuation rolling nature of the war. Um, and what you then interestingly end up with is that the Star Wars storytelling at the moment appears to be redoing the lead up to the second world war um with the republic kind of in the role or the new republic in the role of britain france america after the treaty of versailles after the first world war 
where they've made a peace, they're very tired, they don't want to go to war again, and they are just willing to turn a blind eye to yeah. space fascism down the road. Um, you know, they could enforce all of this treaty, but that leads to, you know, battles and wars and stuff like that. And we're not we're not here for wars anymore. So what you end up getting is this radicalizing bunch of space fascists who live, you know, three blocks down the road, um, who are building up their power and building up their power and you know, you can't you can't appease fascism. That's that's one of the the, the, the lessons of history. Um, that eventually, you know, you can keep offering them stuff, but eventually they're going to want everything else that you're not offering. Um, so it's super interesting to me that that's the kind of the historical arc that they're that they're taking. That you know, the, the Galactic Civil War almost ends up being the First World yeah. War, um, and everything leading up to the First Order War of like beginning in the Force Awakens is this era of appeasement. Um, and again, you know, bunch of, of guys wearing very, very Nazi uniforms, um, walking around doing very, very Nazi things. Um, and you've got, you know, mad eugenic scientists who are interested in cloning and the stuff in the Mandalorian and, and, and bits and pieces like that. So, yeah, you know, there, there's definitely these kind of interesting historical precedents, but, you know, they have leaned mm-hmm. very heavily into the Nazi stuff. Um because again, you know, you have someone standing on a stage in a in a black uniform in front of red and black flags, ranting to a bunch of stormtroopers who make signs. You don't have to fill in the blanks for the audience. Nobody's sat there going, "I wonder if he's a good guy." Um, but, like, yeah, wow, he seems like ludicrously super evil. Um, but what what do you think is they're driving that though? Why why reframe it in that way and go back to and, and be so obvious about it? Do you think is it just that in the times that we live in, we just people have a craving for clear good and evil, and we don't have to think hard about it? But is it just safer territory to say there's they're Nazis? Let's not think any more any more too deeply about it. What is it? See, I. I... If we take, if we so, if we go back through the expanded universe and back to start the original Star Wars and all the things we've already we spoken about, that the key theme of all of them is that they are mirroring what's going on at the time. Um, you know, Star Wars is mirroring America and the Cold War and the Vietnam War. Expanded universe is mirroring America mm. and the post-Soviet state. And I think that therefore, you know, the the potentially the most obvious answer is that you know in a world where you have a rising element of the far right and you have this kind of fears that people are just letting it happen that it's manifesting itself whether or not the directors and you know people working at lucasfilm would come out and say it and at various points they've come out and denied it but that that doesn't necessarily mean that i believe them that it is a reflection of tensions within the moment um and therefore you know you're you're going to have this interaction with you know uh, what appears to be a resurgence of of fascism around the world the easiest way of doing that is to to paint it in nazi terms which is both helpful and unhelpful because you know fascism doesn't always arrive in a nazi uniform those can come later um but also i think from a storytelling point of view um, you know, my, my slightly flippant joke earlier about, you know, nobody's watching that speech from Hux wondering if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Is, you know, if you can outsource a lot of the the narrative heavy lifting to the audience, then it gives you a very free hand. You don't have to waste time of exposition. And like you can get a little bit more bang for your, for your buck in, in the films and and the novels if everybody already accepts that Nazis yeah, are bad yeah, people. Uh, we spend precious little time with Hux, for example, as a character throughout all three films, but mm. even in that first film, which is doing a lot of setup for the whole trilogy, obviously, 
you're right a, a lot of the character work is outsourced to that sort of symbolism that sort of imagery yeah um in that and again you know there's there's echoes of that you know a lot of people have with the sequel trilogy have said oh you know Sloke appears and then he's gone and we never find anything else out about him or any of the things you know his backstory we know literally mm. nothing yeah. about the emperor emperor in the original trilogy um and not that much more no, about darth indeed. vader really um darth vader only appears in the entire original trilogy um all three films yeah. for about 34 minutes um of and that's it um so you know exists as this big symbol but a lot of it is is what the audience has taken from the symbolism rather than any actual yeah, narrative details um so something you said there triggered uh, something in my brain about um disney's maybe you know, whether they want to be publicly saying anything about, about what some of this stuff means um and yeah. it, it reminded me that um in, in your book in, in the prologue i think or in, in, in the preface you talk about having approached lucasfilm with regard to the book and yes. while everyone was really nice there wasn't any particular input from the lucasfilm side um and, and, and i guess no. i find that interesting because only about 10 years ago in 2012 we had this probably one of the last non-fiction works the lucasfilm commissioned under mr lucas's tenure uh was this was star wars and history yes because you know the, historically there has been an interest from lucasfilm in talking about some of the political and historical contexts um, for Star Wars and some of the messaging that might be in, in those original six movies. But, but, but now, I guess, maybe there's a reluctance. Do we seem to be talking about it publicly? Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, I think their, their original kind of... Because when I, when I emailed them, and I'll be honest, my email to them was kind of dual purpose. Firstly, it was to basically try my luck. Yeah. You know, can, will you let me into Star Wars archives <laughs> so I can do stuff? Because this would be great. And I can't imagine a situation where this will ever happen yeah. again. But the other one was yes. to tell them that the book exist, was going to exist um, and to see whether or not they said, if you do this, you'll be hearing from our lawyers. And they didn't say that. And everybody was very nice. Um, but basically, their, their thing was, this is an unlicensed Star Wars book and we don't interact with unlicensed Star Wars books. And it was kind of like a, like a base level thing um now there may well have been an element of and this is really not something that we need in our lives right now um <laughs> thanks very much um you know and we've already done a book about this um we've yeah. already done the star wars and history book which is a book that i really really like and i find interesting for a couple of reasons firstly you know the analysis yeah is really interesting it's really really good but secondly because it's a licensed book it's very interesting in effectively yeah. like the lucas line on on this stuff there's nothing going to be nothing in there that hasn't been approved by by lucasfilm so these are the things that they are happy yeah. for people to take from their from their films um so both of those aspects i find i find super interesting um but you know it might it, there might well have been a reluctance to go you know god given what's going on in the world and you know people who are already very angry at us for very weird reasons on the internet is this definitely yeah. something that we want to want to feed so it thanks chris but it's it's no you can do whatever you want um as long as you don't you know use our stuff without yeah. without copyright and the like at, yeah. at which point we will have an issue but the rest of it is which is you know one of the reasons why there are no pictures in the book yes uh -huh. yeah well, <laughs> I, I was writing about your book recently um online and um i did i think i mentioned that you know it, it, it's maybe not as visually enticing as the 2012 star wars and history but yeah but i mean i'd have loved that 
but the quid pro quo is, I think, that you have had the freedom in this book then to, to dive into some of the yes. areas that, that, that they wouldn't have been free to dive into in that other book. Yeah, I think so. Problematic ethnic coding of certain aliens or the, the, the toxic shenanigans yeah. of the fandom menace online, that, that, that sort of stuff. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't necessarily want to go down that yeah. rabbit hole right now. No, God. <laughs> what I do want to talk about, though, is um, this idea that time and time again, Star Wars seems to be certainly anti-authoritarian and sort of critical of totalitarian models of government. But is it actually pro-democracy? Um, you know, which, which seems it seems. You know, one's knee-jerk reaction would be, of course, it's pro-democratic because all the goodies are constantly trying to overthrow authoritarian regimes. But, but tell us about it, Chris. (laughs) I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, the Empire is seen as bad. Everyone's, you know, in the prequel trilogy, they're all trying to save the Republic. And in the Rebel Alliance, they're all trying to restore the Republic. Hmm. Republic's garbage. In the expanded universe, the New Republic is garbage. In the Mandalorian, the New Republic is garbage. In the new canon, the um, New Republic isn't much more effective. No. As you, as you said earlier, it's head and sand time. Yeah. Um, George Lucas might have a more cynical version of vision of democracy than I do, and I'm a historian, <laughs> and I've got a real cynical version of yeah. stuff going on in the world at the moment. Um, you never see a democracy that works in Star Wars. It's always 15 minutes away from some ludicrous kind of evildoer coming and tearing everything down. And the only thing that saves it is Han, Luke, Leia jumping in the Millennium Falcon and going, God damn it, we're not going to play by the democratic rule book. We'll go and solve this yeah. ourselves. And they go away and solve it. And then, you know, and come join us next week for <laughs> democracy in peril. Um, now, I understand, again, to be fair, yes. that there's a narrative reason for that. Nobody is going to sign up for a big, long series of books that is basically like, oh my God, here comes an imminent threat, but don't worry, the ruling government has formed a exploratory committee, they've allocated <laughs> some funding, and it's going to be fine. That's that's real boring. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that leads on to my second question on this, which is, you know, what sort of depictions of a functioning democracy might be interesting to see in Star Wars? I'd like to see an election. Uh, well, and I... <laughs> an actual election. Yeah. How does anybody get into these positions in the Senate? This is true. I mean, we, we do get... A, there, there's at least talk of an election in... Uh, do you know the novel Bloodline? From yes. The there, there is at least yes. the, the election for the, of the... Is it first senator or whatever that new... Yes, like the head of the New yeah. Republic. But I don't even know if we get to see that happening because the whole the whole thing gets derailed by Leia being yes. as as Vader's daughter. But that's that's the only mention of an election I can think of, certainly in the new, in the new canon. Yeah, in in the prequel trilogies, you get talk about Palpatine having long extended his or long outstayed yes. his term of office. Yeah, um, and in some deleted scenes in Attack of the Clones, you get Padme saying to Anakin that you know I was. 13 years old when I was elected queen and then I served my term and I stepped down but then the queen asked me to go and be the senator for Mm -hmm. Naboo and I didn't feel like I could turn her down so well so the queen's an elected position but the senator is an appointed position for Naboo and okay but how does any of this work that, that, that sounds to me like, um, and it's, it's not a reference point that sort of North American listeners will get, but it, it, it's more like um, the EU Commission. I suppose yes. the Senate is the EU Commission. Yeah, or ambassadors to the United Nations. The head of state or the, the government, the elected government of a state gets to send their people. 
Yes, to, exactly like that. To sit on that body, I guess. And, you know, potentially each world has its own method of, of, of doing yeah. this. But, you know, I... You know, it's again, it's it's not going to happen in the second season of Andor. But I think there's, I would eat up. I I may be in a minority of this, which is one of the reasons why Lucasfilm probably won't do. It, but I would eat up like uh, an an election political thriller. Oh yeah, set in the the, Repu- the old Republic or or the or the the age of the Empire yeah. of you know people jockeying for votes and that in a in an election yeah. on some random yeah. world like the West Wing, but in space. Yeah, I've said it before in the podcast, a show that I would read, that I would give my teeth to see um, would be um, in the New Republic era. Do you, have you read the Aftermath books? Yes. Okay, so do you know the character Sinjir Rathvelis? Yes, like uh, ex-Imperial loyalty officer turned political yes, manipulator. Exactly. I kind of I would love to see a show that's basically about him, but he, he gets this role at the end of that trilogy, basically working for Mon Mothma. I want to see yeah. a show that's him going around the galaxy as Mon Mothma's amoral fixer, you know? Yeah. And sort of and thrown into the mix there being some sort of, you know, electoral crisis or something around Mon Mothma, and he's out there troubleshooting, doing his awful thing so that Mon Mothma gets to have her squeaky clean image and the Republic works. You know, yeah. that that's a show. Or that you know, there, there, is a, there is a milieu there in the New Republic that's kind of ripe for exploitation, I think, that, that could be interesting. Yeah, like Sinjir, civil servant at large. <laughs> bring it on um i do want to talk to you about your other star wars book um god bless it battles that changed the galaxy yeah really visual sumptuous official lucasfilm product how did your involvement in that come about so i was writing my academic star wars book um and had i you know missed a few deadlines with it but that's academic publishing it happens Mm -hmm. um partly because of the pandemic um and you know i've got a lot of star wars books here but some various bits and pieces uh, i couldn't get hold of and you can only get them in the british library easily unless you want to spend a, an insane amount of money on ebay yeah. and the british library closed during the pandemics and during the lockdowns and then it briefly opened for a, a very short window in august 2020 and i went and i booked myself in and i went to the british library um partly for doing some work of what I was doing for the for the research project at Sandhurst, um, but also so I could get hold of some some Star Wars books. Um, and I came out at the end of the day, and it was only like their second day that they'd been open. And I tweeted, was at the British Library today for any other academics who might be worried about it. It, it felt super safe. You know, people were masking, there were gaps between the chairs, there was hand sanitizer everywhere. You, you know, you remember that weird 2020 mm-hmm. moment. I, I remember coughing too loudly in public and getting the death stare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People staring at you like you're a psychopath. And I've got asthma. And people don't half stare when you've got asthma during a pandemic. Um, so the British Library then contacted me to say, would you mind if we stuck this in our newsletter? Because it's going to go out to people and, you know, we're telling them that we reopened and like it would be really helpful to have your little bit there. And if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about what it was that you were doing at the British Library that day. Yeah. So I said, yep, yeah, that's fine. And here's what I was doing. Um, but they didn't put it in their newsletter. They, they tweeted it out as part of their coverage on Twitter and an editor at DK saw it um, and emailed me through my website, Uh having seen that I was working on this academic history Star Wars book um, and emailed me through my website, which then went into my spam folder. Um, Yeah. Even thinking about that gives me the resting heart rate of a serial killer. Jeez. (laughs) Uh, I, um, 
and then found it later that day. And yeah, it, it was from there that they were basically saying, you know, we're writing this, we're, we're doing this Star Wars history, military history book. Do you fancy getting on board? You don't have to be a big Star Wars fan for it. It's like, I, I wouldn't worry about that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it kind of, it, it, it stemmed from there, but it's just the, the most ludicrous slice of luck imaginable to the extent yeah. that, you know, if that was to happen in a fictional thing, you'd go, really? Bit tenuous, isn't it? Bit tenuous. <laughs> so, well, what, what was your role in that then? I guess where were the other were the other authors on board already, and then you were coming in. Well, one of them was I. I don't okay. know which one. Spect was probably Jason Fry, um, and then Cole and Amy joined in later. And then the way that it worked, he was still basically, and again. One of the, the, the things I find most pleasing about this is that there were a variety of ways that this could have worked. You know, DK and the three established big name Star Wars authors could have gone, we're going to write this book. And Chris, we just want you to read it for a little bit of history, you know, sprinkle yeah. a little, you know, a little bit of historical garnish on the top. But this is Star Wars and we're not playing with your nonsense. So that and it was never like that. We the, the book is divided entirely equally between the four of us. Every Friday, um, David Fentiman, the editor at DK, who is wonderful and great and incredibly patient, um, would email out and go, okay, this week we here are um, 12 spreads that we need doing in the next week. Um, Chris, you got the chance to pick first last time, so we'll stick you at the bottom of the pile. And Jason, it's your turn to pick this first this time. So you pick three, and then Amy Radcliffe, you pick three, and then Cole Horton, you pick three, and then Chris, you're left with what's with what's yeah. left. Um, and in and amongst that, we got to pitch ideas for um, big double spreads in the book. Um, and there's a variety of kind of little kind of bubble topics in there, stuff about like... I know I'm trying to imagine remember what's in the book now, like um like neo-imperialism's one in there, and there's one about um you know different sizes of sp- of, of space battleships, and there's there's various like really cool little double spreads mm-hmm. that people did in there. And we got to pitch some of those and then we voted and selected some of them. Um and then we all each got a couple of big multi-page spreads, you know, like the Battle of Endor is a big multi-page spread in it, you know, the Battle of Yavin yeah. is a big multi-page spread in it. And everything was done democratically. I, there was there was never a, like an issue. Of, oh, you know, you've stolen this topic from me, or I never got my. Every week we would just kind of we'd cycle through the the, the chances we got to go yeah. first, and it was wonderful. It was the easiest, most collegiate, collaborative writing experience that I've ever had. That's great, and I absolutely Fantastic. adored every minute of it. Well, hopefully you'll get a, a another crack at uh, another one of those at some point. That in the would future. be fun. I would I would very very much like that. That would make me very happy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, something else I wanted to chat to you about, Chris, was because um, I, I often see you posting on Instagram, <laughs> uh, p- painting up some little yes. figures, um, which I recognise from my misspent teenage years mostly as, as Warhammer yes. um, stuff. Um, you're very good at painting. Them, oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm heavily colourblind, so painting is a challenge. At uh-huh. times, but um, there's this new thing called contrast paints, which do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. You just you don't have to worry about shades and bits and pieces. So I, I talked with some friends and and, and like who okay, I basically said this is the color scheme that I want, and they yeah. helped me pick out because they're all named stupid things that don't actually exist. It's like oh, this one is Nasdrag Shine. It's like th- only one of those is a word. <laughs> what what color is it? Um, so they've helped me kind of pick out the various colors, and then you just paint it on almost kind of like painting by numbers in it yeah 
it's it's nice because as academics we don't produce anything not really i mean you know books eventually but you know i'm giving a lecture today and then i've done it well i guess on to the next one you never actually get to do something and hold it in your hands at the end of it yeah yeah Uh, sort of adding something tangible to the sum total of the world Yes, uh, you know, I not only did I I do a thing, but I can I can see that thing. Like yes. other people can see it as well. Yeah, yeah. Do do you play any of the Star Wars tabletop games? I do. Um, so there's a few that I have and I've played. Um, I've played some Armada with uh-huh. a friend, which I really enjoy. Not not in any kind of serious way. We haven't kind of gone too deeply into like fleet building and enormous lists and like you know i bought some star destroyers and bought some rebel ships and like it's just fun to move a star destroyer around a table and you know pew pew the the main laser batteries (laughs) and stuff um i've got some legion um that i've bought and some of them that i've painted but i haven't played the game yet um but the one that i really really like i really like imperial assault it's a really fun game so the, the the cool thing about Imperial Assault is it's a competitive collaborative game. So I played it for years and years with um, a group. There's there's me and three other friends who play a variety of online or tabletop games. Um, and the way that it works is that the three of them play as the rebel characters. They each have their own rebel characters, but they, mm-hmm. they work their way through narrative missions. And my job is part games master, part Imperial player. So I know okay. the narrative, I know the twists of the missions and that coming up, and I control the Imperial forces. I move the, the stormtroopers around or you know, drop Darth Vader down on the table at narrative moments, and you play through a campaign. They, each box set comes with a little campaign book with the missions and the, and the soldiers and that that you need, mm-hmm. and you, pay, you play 12 missions, and then the game's done, and then you move on to one of the other expansions. And it's a really fun game um so next week i so two of my friends um uh don't live super conveniently to me i say they don't live super conveniently to me i i'm the one that moved house um <laughs> they, to get together regularly to play with them is is tricky but uh I, the third friend lives not that far from me and we are working our way through all of the imperial assault boxes you know he plays as the rebels i play as the empire um but slightly more collaborative so you know i'll if he's about to do something, I'll kind of drop in, you know, these are the possible little things that could happen. Yeah. Here. So, you know, because, you know, it's not fun if I just win. You know, it's <laughs> indeed it's, the point is to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, not, I, you know, I, it's a hard game it. Quite. I, I've, I've started to introduce my son. Who, you know, he's, he's almost nine years old now. I started to introduce him to some of the, and you'll remember these, the MB Games versions of the Games Workshop license yeah. titles from the 90s. So Hero Quest and Space Crusade. Yeah, stuff, yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. Kind of what I've always thought of as a sort of a gateway drug level. Yeah, very much so. Hook them young. Family-friendly <laughs> board games that would then lead you into sort of advanced Hero Quest and advanced Space Crusade and Warhammer and all this other stuff. Yeah, back in the 90s. and then before you know but it. Yeah, you know, but, but I'm always, you know, I'm always sort of, busy GMing those to, to make sure he wins and is having fun, you know? Yeah, It's kind of, yeah, well, 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 what's the point if the GM wins it? Yeah, and no one's having any fun. And there's parts of the Imperial Assault which are super, feel really cinematic. Like, when I was playing it with my three friends, the first time Darth Vader arrived and they had to stop for five minutes or so and go, should we just run away? Because I'm pretty sure he's just <laughs> going to murder us. Um, or... You know, should one of us engage him in combat and the other two try and do the objectives? How do we solve Darth yeah. Vader turning up? And that's fun. 
that's that's yeah. a cool little 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 moment quirk in the game. Fantastic! Is Rebel sorry Imperial Assault is that one that you'd recommend sort of a newbie could pick up and get into? Yeah, I think so. It's yeah. a reasonably simple game to play. You know, it's got the rules. I mean, like all of these games, it's got like several various of the rules and like and the first imperial assault campaign is a pretty pretty easy one to play through and the way that it works is it's kind of like a choose your own adventure if you win mm-hmm. you go to x mission next mission if you lose you go to x to y Ooh, next okay. mission yeah. which means it's got replayability um yeah. so yeah and um i don't think they they don't make the expansions and that for you know because it was it was fantasy fly and then fantasy flight basically gave a lot of it over to atomic games atomic yeah. mass games but you can still buy imperial assault um or go to like a game store and, and play it it's yeah. yeah it's it's a lot of fun i really like imperial assault and the yeah. models are cool again it's a type of it's a type of game that you know fantasy flight could have gotten away with making really cheap models for it and it would still be star wars and people would still play it. but no they've got your little plastic molded stormtroopers and yeah. characters and like and yeah it's fun it sounds great. It sounds great. I'm going to have to get caught up with that. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm conscious of the time, um, but before we wrap things up, I do have to talk to you about the High Republic. Um, yes. Because it, it, it's almost mandatory on this show that at some point we talk about the High Republic. Um, have you read any yet? So I've read the first three major kind of novels from Phase One. So I read uh, Light of the Jedi. I read The Rising Storm, and I read um, uh, F- The Fallen, Fallen Star, Star. Um, and really enjoyed all three of them. Um, I, I Basically, I had to stop, because you know, there's a lot of High Republic material coming out, oh, yeah. and trying to keep up with it is, oh, yeah. is tricky. But I basically had to stop because I couldn't get any more stuff in my academic book. And I knew that if I kept reading new Star Wars books, I'd try and find ways of crowbarring it in, and it was never going to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I guess the, I was conscious that you you hadn't really touched on the High Republic stuff in no. the book. I guess having read even just that little bit of it, is there anything there to unpack from the yeah, High Republic? There's, there's, a, there's a couple of things. I mean, firstly, the the Republic of Chancellor So Lena um, So, yeah, Lena So, is certainly more idealistic than mm. the Republic scene in the prequel films or any of those other things and you know it's got it's got its problems but what you actually have is good nice politicians which there are you know definitely a a deficit of in in later material um you know it'll be interesting if if they further drill into the inner workings of that republic and that's something i would really really like to see um you know the republic at the period when it's effectively you know appears to be working um with with issues but you know you always get issues around political systems um the other thing that kind of came from it and I, I very briefly touched on it i think in the in the epilogue or the conclusion of my academic book is um with the nihil as the bad guys and you get you know big attacks and moments in all three of those books of light of the jedi um rising storm and the fallen star is how interestingly close they are to watching real unfolding terrorist attacks attacks in our own world that we were able to watch online and watch on the tv not 9-11 stuff I'm, i think things like you know the the terrorist attacks in paris for example yes. when you could track this stuff across the city as it was being yeah. reported in in real time and you get that element of that in those books where you know these awful things are happening and they're being broadcast on the hollow net you know people yeah. are sat at home watching this big large scale you know ongoing unfolding attacks and massacres and the like 
in a way that is very different to the kind of the you know the 9-11 huge moment it's a it, it's a different feel of it and i find that yeah really really interesting as a, as a mm. again a reaction to our own times yeah yeah there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the High Republic. I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts once you get into phase two of the High Republic, actually. Yes. There, there's there's some very interesting stuff there around. Yeah. Um, I think sort of mutually exclusive worldviews and the sort of the, the elevation of baseless positions in some sort of misguided search for balance. There's a lot of stuff yeah. there that's kind of very resonant. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. In terms of our times, the- you know. The other thing which is kind of inherent to the to, to the Republic is it's a far, the High Republic is a far more diverse group of characters oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. in regards to, to the race, gender, um, uh, sexual identity, and the like. It's it's a it's a far more interesting, diverse, broad collection of, of yeah. characters, which is you know super good and super interesting for storytelling purposes because you've got unlimited possibilities now but it's also interesting from a kind of a cultural standpoint that you know this is where a lot of this is appearing for star wars and lucasfilm it's being rooted in the high republic you get bits and pieces in the other novels which is great but a lot of the high republic is kind of very very encompassing and very very welcoming to kind of a diverse range of characters which means that when you go to things like Star Wars Celebration, the people who are in super, super into the High Republic, it's a diverse spread of of people. Were you at Celebration this year? Yeah, I was at Celebration um, this year, and I was in Anaheim last year, because that's where we were doing stuff for uh, Battles at Chains of the Galaxy. Yeah, one of the things that blew me away about Celebration this year, and it was was my first time at any big con, actually, um, was seeing the High Republic cosplayers, you know, and and there there were folk there who were dressed as characters from Phase 2, so books that had Books that were barely five months old, you know, and, and they were cosplaying as um, these sister characters, Yana and Marta Rowe and, and others, and of course various Jedi from Phase 1 as well. Um, and one of my favourite bits of that whole celebration, actually, was there was a High Republic cosplayer and author meetup outside on yeah. the steps. You know, and I I was in cosplay, but I wasn't dressed as a High Republic character. But I, I just kind of went along to hang out and just to see that, you know, and there's just so much love in the air from it's these. It's touching. It's really touching. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the authors obviously love seeing the, you know, the, the characters they've created sort of being brought to life in that way as well. Um, so much interesting stuff in the High Republic. Um, yeah, it's no surprise that we end up talking about it on this pod all the time. Um, before we wrap up, then, what's making you particularly happy in the world of Star Wars at the minute? And is there anything you're particularly looking forward to? So, stuff that's making me happy. I've I'm currently playing Jedi Survivor, which I'm having Ooh, a lot of fun yes. with. It's really, really yes. fun. Very pretty yeah. game. Um, and I've managed to like basically stay kind of entirely ignorant about the plot as well which is great oh well done um yep so i'm um so i'm very much enjoying that um just finished re-watching rebels which i adore uh-huh. rebels is a wonderful tv show it um, is really is you, there's parts when you're watching it and going it's a kid show <laughs> just you know, chris has murdered that guy but i am um, I, I recently introduced in the last year or so introduced a, a friend of mine same age as, as, as myself to the Star Wars animation, and um, we yeah. sort of we'd have a, we'd have a virtual get together twice a week and watch a couple oh, of episodes, fun. you know. And every now and again, through the Clone Wars and Rebels, he'd just turn to me and say, "This is isn't for kids," <laughs> you know. There's a lot of stuff, stuff in there. going on. 
Yeah. 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 Um, I adored Andor with every mm. yeah. part of my being. And again, that Andor would have appeared in my book a lot uh, yeah. if it had been yeah. out in time. Yeah. Um, so again, if I ever sure. go back and do like a second edition, it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of Andor in there. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited for, I'm excited for, um, for Ahsoka. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I'm hoping it's going to be fun. I'm hoping it's going to be good. Um, and then for, you know, the things that will come beyond it, you know, Dave Filoni's um, Thrawn trilogy film that's not the yes. Thrawn trilogy, basically, you know, mm. what they're, like the, the New Republic versus the Imperial Women. Yeah. He's something I'm super, super looking forward to. I'm, I'm very much intrigued by that. I'm looking forward to seeing what direction they're going with Thrawn in this Ahsoka show and then... Yeah. In terms of how, how, what, what sort of hints that will offer as to what they'll be doing then going forward with the, I'm assuming it's basically an, a sort of a closer an air to the Empire adaptation as they can yeah. as they can do within the framework they've got now. I find it really interesting because when you know Disney decanonized the old expanded universe and everybody was like, but we want to watch the film of Air to the Empire and Last Command and all of those things, and I always sat there and think it's going to make no sense to like 70% of the audience. You cannot Absolutely. expect them to, to take on board all of this stuff that you don't have time to put in a film for a 90 minute film. on. like the only way that they will yeah. ever be able to do this is if they spend a lot of time in the lead up to it, yeah. laying out the context and the lead up and all of the other elements of the post Endor Empire yeah. and all of the Edge of the Empire stuff. And then it turns out that what they've done is spend a lot of time and a lot <laughs> of years laying out Edge yeah. of the Empire stuff. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I had similar reactions when I saw it. I, I totally understood the response of, of Expanded Universe fans to the canon mm -hmm. reboot. I, I get that. If you've, if you've invested a lot of emotional energy and yeah. money <laughs> in keeping up, to suddenly have that the relationship that that stuff has to to the other material changed so so dramatically, I, I get that, that that's difficult for some folk. I never understood this 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 refrain that somehow the sequel films should have been adaptations of Air to the Empire. Not not least because to have those made with age appropriate with the actors at age appropriate points in the, in, the, in their lives, you would have had to have made it in like nineteen eighty seven. Yes, you know they're only five years older yeah. than than they were in um, the Battle of End, the, the Battle of Endor. So the idea that you could wheel back in Hamill, Fisher, and so and, and Ford in yeah. their sixties and beyond to do that story just made no sense to me. Yeah, but also and I've I've read those books. I want I want to see something new um, yes. if I'm going to the cinema yeah. because yeah. you know they're, they're not short books. You know, there's a lot of they're, stuff. They're not, in each and, of them. and they're not. They're not movie shaped. And you know, oh God, the, no, not at all. And I, I don't think you would do. If you did it, then the fans of the books are going to be horrified that X, Y, and Z has been chopped out. You know, yeah. and also, um, you know, I, I really, really like the Thorn trilogy. The first book, Edge of the Empire. You know, it's a lot of fun. It does not have a cinematic ending. It just ends. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a bit of a cinematic ending in um, Dark Force Rising and then a big one at the end of Last Command. But, you know, if that was to happen on the screen and then just the credits roll, everyone's going to say, well, what? 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Well, which is why I'm fascinated to see what they'll do in terms of cherry picking elements and sort of and yes. basically doing us giving us the new canon remix of yes. something that 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 has the flavor of that, I guess. But um, I think more than anything else, I'm just kind of hoping for a Thrawn who maybe feels a bit like canon Thrawn. I've really enjoyed Zan's take on canon Thrawn. This kind of yeah. Um, I know definitely talks about Moriarty. Zan talks about Holmes, you know. Yes. Um, that's slightly more sympathetic, and you, you know, you understand that his loyalty to the Empire is kind of contingent. Um, yeah. That I find fascinating. There's a weird kind of divide between, particularly with, you know, ignore all the old expanded universe stuff. We've just talked about canon. Is that Zan's throne is so omnipotent? If you read the new Thrawn, he never makes any mistakes. He always knows everything, mm. which effectively makes him unbeatable. And Filoni's Thrawn is slightly more fallible, kind of yeah. in line with how Zahn's old Thrawn used to be. And it's it's sometimes difficult trying to reconcile those two characters in yeah. that, you know, the, the, the Thrawn of the Zahn novels who makes all the decisions is basically predicting how battles are going to happen even before they've, they've started. And the Thrawn of Rebels who goes to... Um, Admiral Constantine, I'm going to give you a, an important job to do at this battle, and then when I go down to the planet, I'm not going to pick any of my like you know, capable Star Destroyer commanders. I'll give it to Governor Price to take over. Yeah. That those seem like real bad choices. Mm. Make perfect sense narratively because you want the narrative yeah. ending for it, but it's just he's there's a there's a disconnect. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I yeah, I, I'm fascinated to see which way it'll go. Um, yeah. It should be interesting at the very, very least. And, you know, it, it's always interesting to see how, how things are received. But... Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, can't, can't wait for those, that Twitter discourse. <laughs> um, well, if you're, looking for, if you're looking for a safe space to, to chat about it, um, you can come back <laughs> onto the show and we'll, we'll probably be doing some sort of debrief uh, once the whole thing is done. Um, let, let's wrap things up because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Chris. Uh, I know you're a busy boy. Um, where can folk find you online if you don't mind being found online? No, no, I don't. I don't mind being found online. Um, so, um, you know, Twitter at Chris Kempshaw um, with that, you know, the not inconsiderable asterisk of how long twitter continues to exist in, uh -huh. its, in its current form i refuse to call it its rebranding name because it's stupid um um beyond that you know blue sky i'm on i'm on um threads i'm on instagram all of those are at chris kempshaw um because i'm the only chris kempshaw who's ever existed and therefore i get to pick um <laughs> my name for, for pretty much anything i want to do so those are those are the the, the online places to to find me twitter and instagram is probably where i'm most active um you know that'll change if one kind of challenger rises to the top yeah in highlander yeah. style and becomes the uh, becomes the only one yeah yeah uh and of course both of your books are out in the wild both of your star wars books are out in the yes. wild and um can be picked up i think you did you say you had a discount code that we can share so, with folk. um yeah i can i can share it with you if you want to put it in the show notes and the like Fantastic. Um, and, and maybe, maybe the social media posts yes um it's it's a 25 percent off discount code it should work until the end of september um so if you go onto the routledge page put the code in you'll get a quarter off the book which Fantastic. kind of makes it the price of of a book which is which is nice and reasonable yeah. um 
the battles that change the galaxy is just kind of out and about in the world um yeah if anybody is listening to this in london i um as part of our wandering around london on the weekend um i popped into the Ridden planet and signed a few of their um copies that they had on the shelf because obviously oh. jason and amy and cole are all in america um yeah so you know i'm the only i'm the only one on this side of the pond so i, I try and kind of drop in semi-regularly and sign some copies there so if you pop into forbidden planet you might end up being able to get a signed copy is that the big forbidden planet or is tottenham court road area? yeah on, on tottenham court road yeah 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 very good i miss, I miss that place i i lived and worked in london a while back um uh, yeah yeah amazing store okay um i think that is going to wrap us up um coming up on the show Later this week, we have uh, Canon in 15 Minutes is back with a chat about Heir to the Jedi, uh, a novel from Luke Skywalker's perspective that deserves probably a lot more love than it gets. And uh, next week, we hope to be able to bring you our first interview with a recent Star Wars fiction author. Uh, so keep your ear holes primed for that one. Uh, in the meantime, folks, it's a goodbye from our very special guest, Chris Kemshaw. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you very much for, for, for tuning in. Thank you so much for being here, Chris. It's been a pleasure. And it's a goodbye from me. Thanks for listening, folks, and may the force be with you. <laughs>